Well, welcome back to our study of the book of Genesis. Uh, today we're going to be in chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. And the title of this sermon is Hide and Seek. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, go ahead and open them there. Genesis 3, 8 verse thir- through verse 13. But before we jump into the text, since we've been away from Genesis for a couple of weeks... I want to remind us of where we've been so far in this book to set the scene for this text specifically. Remember, we began this story, the story of the universe and the story of the Bible as a whole, in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. We learned that before this is a story about you and me, It's first a story about God. He created everyone and everything, and he created everything good. He gave everything order and purpose, beauty and function. He created mankind. You ready for this? In his own image, a reflection of his character here on earth to represent his authority and kingship over all of creation. He gave mankind dignity and value because they were created in his image. He created man and woman equal, yet distinct and purposeful. And then, in chapter 2, we learn that Moses shifts from simply calling him God, Elohim, the transcendent, omnipotent, sovereign, to calling him Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, the God who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush and covenanted with Israel on Mount Sinai. We learned that he's one and the same. The creator God of chapter 1 is the covenant God of chapter 2. He made man But man was lacking something, something vital. So God provided. He provided by making woman from man. And we learn that she was the solution to not good. God made the covenant of works with mankind, promising blessing for obedience and sure death for disobedience. And the last time we were in this book, we learned in Genesis 3, 1 through 7, that mankind did, in fact, disobey God's good command. Woman and man both distrusted God's word, and more importantly, God himself. They took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they ate. And immediately, in verse 7, the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. In other words, they lost their innocence and and traded in guilt, uh, traded it in for guilt and shame. They tried to cover themselves up with fig leaves, which was completely inadequate. And that brings us to today's text. So let's dive in. This is the word of the Lord. Genesis 3, verses 8 through 13. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden 
in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. Verse 11. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Have you ever tried to hide from someone? I mean, like, really tried to hide from someone. I remember growing up, uh, our youth group would play this game every summer called Assassins. You'd draw names out of a hat, and if you could hit that person with a sock when they were outside, then they were out of the game. But someone was stalking you, too. Great game. You'd go on all summer. That's the only time in my life I've really tried to hide from someone. But I watched some of these police chases where someone's trying to hide from the police. They're either running or driving, and the police are just up there in a helicopter with infrared technology, just tracking this guy. They know exactly where he is, even when he thinks he's getting away. It's silly. Can you imagine trying to hide from God? Well, that's exactly what Adam and Eve try to do in this text, isn't it? As we'll come to see, that's what we all try to do as a result of sin. We may not all do it in the same way, but we all do it. We try to hide from God. Look with me at verse 8. Adam and Eve have just sinned, rebelling against the creator God of the universe. They're riddled with guilt and shame. They've tried to cover themselves up with leaves. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Before we move any farther, I want to just ask you a question. When you sin... If you're honest with yourself, do you ever get the sense that God's character changes in that moment? Yeah, I I know that God's near to me, but now, now, he wants nothing to do with me. He's distant, and he's going to stay that way until I clean myself up. He's not here anymore. He's now somewhere out there. Have you ever felt like that before? I have. I want each of you to look back at this text very closely. What's God called throughout these verses? Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh Elohim. The Lord God. 
It's the same relational, near, covenant-making God from chapter 2 here in chapter 3. And what does he do? Again, we might have half expected him just to be gone. You guys sinned and disobeyed me. I'm out. I'm going to keep my distance from you sinners. But is that what he does? No. It's the relational, close, Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, that pursues sinners. And notice that he's walking, not running. The text doesn't say that he came down from heaven either. He was there. And now he's patiently and calmly moving towards them. He knows who he is. And he knows who they are. Adam and Eve, on the other hand, they're now very aware of who they are as sinners. But they're not so clear on God anymore, are they? The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. First, they believed that they could hide from the presence of the Lord God. Do you see that? I'll let you in on a little secret. That's impossible. (laughs) Psalm 139, verses 1 through 8. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. You can't hide from God. But we still try, don't we? Think of Jonah. Jonah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, And call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. That's in the opposite direction of Nineveh. Rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He thought he could do it. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah thought he could hide from God's presence. How did that work out for him? God knew exactly where Jonah was. He knows exactly where Adam and Eve are. He knows where you are, physically, emotionally, spiritually. He's omnipresent everywhere, and he's omniscient, all-knowing. He knows right where you are, body, soul, and spirit. So why do we try to hide? Lots of reasons, actually. I'll highlight just a couple. Number one, we try to hide because of shame. 
We know that God knows where we are. But we're too embarrassed to face him in our shame. We're cognitively aware of our sin and of God's holiness. So we just try to hide. Second, we try to hide from God because of fear. Adam will say this out loud in verse 10, and I'll cover this in a little bit, but sometimes we try to hide out of fear of God. So shame, fear, third, unbelief. When we believe something wrong about God, we try to hide. And when we believe something wrong about God, we're not believing the right and true things about God. And we all do this. Each time we sin, we're acting in our unbelief. We're believing that whatever sin that we're committing is better than what God has for us. We're believing that God isn't loving and that he doesn't care for us and that his commands aren't given with our best interest in mind. Then we believe that he's a distant, angry, unmerciful tyrant who's just kind of trigger-happy and ready to destroy us. By the way, that's what Jonah wanted God to be against the Ninevites, but not against him. That's unbelief. And when we believe lies about God, it can cause us to try to hide from him. I wonder what Adam and Eve were believing about God. What are you believing about God this morning? Friends, this is why God's word is so important. When you saturate yourself in God's word, you don't just gain some great Bible trivia. You come to know God himself and his character. And even in that, we need God's word and we need each other. So often, I need to be reminded of who God is. First, through my wife and through you guys as church members. So often, I'll be getting stressed out about something. And Shannon will just patiently and graciously remind me that I'm not trusting in God. Or not believing something true about God. Second, this is one of the reasons that we sing Each and every time that we sing here as a congregation, we're reminding each other in song of who God is. So what are you believing about God this morning? And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I know I'm being a bit repetitive here, but I hope you see how absurd that is. They misunderstand who God is. And they try to hide behind trees, which he created, by the way. What trees do you try to hide behind? Maybe it's the trees of intellectualism. Maybe you think Christianity is a crutch for ignorant people who are kind of out of touch with reality and science. I'll ask you, have you really considered all of the facts? Have you read the Bible or studied church history? Or have you simply dismissed God's revealed truth out of hand? 
to dismiss Christianity without ever truly wrestling with its truth claims is intellectually dishonest. It's hiding behind an intellectual tree and refusing to deal squarely with God. Christianity is a reasonable faith, if you'll consider it honestly. God is a God of order and of truth. Maybe it's a moral tree that you're hiding behind. A moral tree. Think of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. She had had five husbands, and the man that she was currently with was not her husband. But she didn't want to deal with the truth, did she? She instead decided to raise religious arguments about where one should worship. She didn't want to deal with herself. Jesus essentially calls her out from behind the tree, doesn't he? He says, I know exactly where you are. Come out and drink deeply of the water that will never run dry and will never leave you thirsty. What trees are you hiding behind? And here's the truth that I don't want us to miss. When we hide from God, whatever tree that might be, when we hide from God, we're missing out on God's goodness. I think of James chapter 1, verses 17. It says, Every good and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He gives good gifts. Consider the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. The son, in essence, takes the father's inheritance and runs away from him. He goes and he squanders it away. But eventually he comes to his senses as he's eating pig slop. And he realizes what he's missing out on in his father's good and gracious home. Sons and daughters, when we hide from God, we're missing out on his goodness. This whole text in Genesis 3 is dripping with God's grace and kindness if we're willing to look closely. First, God didn't just bolt. He patiently walks toward them in their shame, fear, and unbelief when they didn't deserve it. Then, look at verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? I wonder, when you read that verse, what tone do you hear? Well, that depends on what you believe about God, doesn't it? If he's an angry, impatient, ungracious tyrant, his where are you probably sounds exactly like that. Angry, impatient, ungracious. He's asking where you are because he wants to kill you. But if he's the God of Psalm 8615, if he's that God, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, if he's that God, 
His where are you has quite a different tone, doesn't it? It's a fatherly tone, asking a fatherly question. Where are you? I love you. I'm concerned for you. Now, this doesn't mean at all that God is somehow indifferent to sin or comfortable with sin. This couldn't be further from the truth. He hates sin. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God will not be mocked, and sin will be dealt with, because God is a God of justice. Either Jesus will bear God's wrath, or you will. But God, in his fatherly grace and patience, calls to us. He calls us out from hiding. He gives us time to repent and to trust in Christ who bore God's just wrath for all who believe. Look at the grace of God here. Where are you? Where are you? God knew exactly where they were, but he's drawing them out. He's ready to care for their eternal souls. Yahweh Elohim, the relational God, is pursuing sinners and not the other way around. Understand this. Because of sin and its effects on us, none of us, and I do mean none of us, will naturally pursue God. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. It says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. This isn't a story of Adam and Eve sinning and then seeking after God until they found him. No. This is a story of a gracious, loving God seeking out ruined sinners. It's also not a story of sinners cleaning themselves up until they were good enough to come out from hiding. Do you see that? No, the story of the Bible is Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that amazing? That's unbelievable. But it's true. God isn't distant and waiting for you to clean yourself up. He's the hound of heaven. And he's seeking out sinners to save through the cross of Christ. Where are you? God might be calling you this very moment. If you're not a Christian, maybe he's calling you to turn from your sin and to trust in Christ right now. Come out from hiding. Jesus came to this earth and he lived a perfect life. He never sinned and he never hid from God. He didn't have to. 
He obeyed God completely in every single way. And then he went to the cross and died in our place as our substitute. And when we turn from sin and trust in Jesus, the Bible tells us that we'll be saved by grace. Where are you? If you're a Christian, maybe you're wrestling with a particular sin. And you've been in a rut trying to hide from God in your shame and fear and unbelief. Come out from hiding. Let the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, draw you out this morning. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Where are you? The God of the Bible is a gracious, relational God who seeks out ruined sinners like you and me. So how does Adam respond? He confesses his sin, he repents, and he trusts God completely. Not so much. Unfortunately, he responds poorly. God asks where he is, and look at verse 11. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Adam's sin is exposed, and he's afraid of God. Now, isn't fearing God a good thing? Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. David, in Psalm 86.11, he prays, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Yet, other times, the Bible says, like Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Fear not. So which is it? Should we fear God or fear not? Well, both. In fact, look what Moses writes in Exodus 20, verses 18 through 21. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. There are two types of fear in the Bible. One is sinful. The other is good and right and God-glorifying. Michael Reeves writes, writes this. 
He says, sinful fear is a fear of God that flows from sin. It's the sort of fear James tells us that the demons have when they believe and shudder. Sinful fear, this is key, sinful fear drives you away from God. When we perceive God as a pure threat, we will run from him in fear, wishing the heavenly ogre did not exist. But what about right or godly fear? Look what Jeremiah writes, speaking of the new covenant. Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 38 through 40. God says, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Do you see that? Whatever this fear is, it doesn't cause God's children to run from him, but instead to him. This fear is a posture of being overwhelmed at God's goodness. In fact, it's often associated with God's blessing. Jeremiah 33 verses 6 through 9, it says, Behold, I will bring it to health and healing. And I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of prosperity and security. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. And I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. Sounds great, right? Verse 9. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. And here it is. In light of all of that, they shall fear and tremble. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and the prosperity I provide for it. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Do you see that? Due to lack of time, we've got to move on. But I want you to know that there's two types of fear in the Bible. Sinful fear that drives us away from God, and godly fear that drives us to him. Adam and Eve were sinfully afraid of God. If you want to know more about this topic, there's this book, Rejoice and Tremble, The Surprising Good News of the Fear of the Lord by Michael Reeves. And so if you're a regular part of this church and you'll read this book in the next two or three months and have coffee with me to discuss it, uh, there's an extra copy and it'll be up here for the first one to come grab it later. Fantastic book, one of the better books I've read in a long time. So Rejoice and Tremble by Michael Reeves. So Adam tells God, I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. Verse 11. God says, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Again, do you see the patience and the graciousness of God here? 
He already knows the answers to these questions. But he's not just merely running Adam over. Instead, he's using questions to draw Adam out. He's like Nathan the prophet who who leads David to confess his sin. But Adam, still deep in his rebellion and dense in his lack of understanding of God, look at what he says, verse 12. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. How sad is this? Remember chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verses 23. It says, Then the man said, This is at last, speaking of the woman, This is at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. This, This amazing gift that God had given Adam, he's now blaming for his own sin. But it's even worse than that, isn't it? Look at verse 12 again. It's not just the woman that Adam's blaming. The man said, the woman whom you, God, whom you gave to be with me. He's blaming God himself. Kent Hughes comments that we all understand from this and from our own hearts that to err is human. To blame it on others and upon God is more human. Ouch, and amen. Adam's acting like Satan here, arguing that if God were better, that he wouldn't have done things this way. The oneness from chapter 2 is broken. Both vertically, oneness with God, and horizontally, oneness with his wife. And this is what sin always does. It leads to brokenness. Eve follows Adam in verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. You see the pattern here. Neither of them owns their sin before God. Instead, in a victim mentality, they blame shift. They're neither remorseful nor repentant. And so I'll ask you this morning, where do you put the blame for your sin? Where do you put the blame for your sin? Your circumstances? Your surroundings? Your past? Your disposition? Maybe God himself? James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Where do you put the blame for your sin? So... What's the solution? What's the answer? Where should we put our sin? Well, the Bible's clear answer from cover to cover is that we should put our sin upon Christ. 
even though the blame for our sin rests squarely on us alone. Christ takes our blame. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, says, Surely he, meaning Christ, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See this. Jesus never, not once, Jesus never played the blame game. He took our blame on himself. And he didn't try to pass it on to anyone else. He bore our griefs and was crushed for our iniquities. Saints and sinners, instead of hiding from Christ, hide in Christ. He's your only hope of salvation. He's our Redeemer, our Savior, our sacrificial Lamb. On the cross of Christ, grace and mercy and freedom from sin and death are held out to us for the taking. Repent and believe in Jesus. Our God is a gracious God who pursues ruined sinners like you and me. Where are you? Come out from hiding this morning and trust in who God is. Let's pray.